On this edition of the Beltour Christi podcast, we answer the questions that you have submitted to BeltourChristi.com. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Chilton. And we uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Hope you're doing well, uh, wherever you may be. Uh, we do have uh, a lot of wonderful questions that have been uh, asked over at uh, BellatorChristie.com. And this podcast is going to um, be uh, uh, devoted to answering those questions. And so uh, some of the individuals who uh, have asked the questions have posted their names. And so uh, I'll, I'll mention their names just in, just briefly as we go along in the podcast. And we'll uh, also uh, discuss uh, the questions and hopefully uh, provide some answers uh, to these wonderful questions that have been presented. If you would like yourself to uh, ask a question uh, to Bellator Christie, uh, submit a question to Bellator Christie, um, to uh, possibly be added uh, on the uh, podcast, uh, go over to bellatorchristie.com, and while you're there, go up to the upper uh, right-hand corner of the page, and there should be a uh, link to a page where you'd fill out a form asking a question uh, to bellatorchristie.com. And so, again, do so. Uh, by doing so, your question will be uh, queued. I, I may write an article answering your question, or we may do something like this, what we're doing now and answering the question uh, live on the air. If you are a part of the YouTube or Facebook uh, community, uh, I am actually live streaming this as we go along. So uh, if we have time and if you uh, have any questions, if you'll simply uh, type it in the comment bar, I will try to, to include your question if we have time. But I don't know that I will because uh, we do have a lot of wonderful questions and uh, so it's going to take a while uh, going through those questions and uh, trying to do 
justice to the questions that have been asked. So uh, the primary, the, the vast majority of the time will be spent uh, focusing on those questions. But again, uh, if you type your question on the comment bar, if we can't get it to it now, uh, maybe you can get to it later. But the best way to have your question answered is to uh, go to Bellator Christie and again uh, type your question in the uh, in the form that's provided, and I will try to get to it as quickly as possible. Okay, so let's get into it right now. Um, we have about uh, looking at this. If you hear some jingling, as my cat in the background. He's wanting attention now. Seems like he always does this when I do a podcast. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, usually through the day, uh, you know, he, he doesn't even bother me. Uh, you know, he'll, he'll come and he'll want uh, to be petted. But when I do a podcast, it seems like that's when he wants attention the most. I don't know why. I don't know what that's about. But let's go through these questions. We have about, uh, looks like, seven wonderful questions. And some of these questions uh, have uh, sub-questions to them. So we'll go through this as best as possible uh, during the time we have together uh, here as well. By the way, if you're at Bill Tour Christie, be sure to uh, click subscribe. By doing so, you'll have all the links uh, to your articles. All you have to do is enter in your web, your uh, email address, and uh, you'll receive all the articles and links to the podcasts as they become available. Well, again, we're live streaming this, but the podcast will be available at Bellator Christie. And you can catch the podcast on several different apps, uh, iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, as well as Google Play. All right, let's jump right into this. From Curtis Avelo, I hope I pronounced his uh, last name correctly. Curtis is a wonderful man of God. He's uh, over in Montana, and uh, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for them to post a link to on the video to the video where uh, he preached at his church not too long ago. Looking forward to, to hearing that message. Uh, Curtis is a great man of God. And uh, he's called into the ministry, and God's going to do some wonderful things with him. Great supporter of Bellator Christie, and and I would dare say I would call him a friend. I think he's a great guy. So Curtis asks, he said, um, I heard a great question that was asked on Stand to Reason. And for those of you who don't know, Stand to Reason is uh, Greg Kokel's program. And if you don't listen to his podcast, you need to do so. Uh, he's got a wonderful podcast, uh, and so if you haven't already, you need to uh, you need to, to get a hold of that So and listen to that. But he says the question um, essentially was asking, why do atheists want to convert people out of Christianity? Now, we all know as believers we don't wrestle flesh and blood, but it is curious uh, as to why some atheists want to pull people out of you would think that their model or view would leave them alone because we're the smart ones here, and so survival of the fittest applies here. Uh, continue what you're doing. Blessings, Curtis. And um, I would answer that. Uh, Curtis, first of all, thank you for your question and for your support of Bellator Christie. Um, to answer your question, I think that many individuals who are atheists and even some maybe who are agnostics um, are individuals, especially if they were at one time Christians, they're individuals who have, have at one point in time in their lives been hurt by the church or they've been hurt by a Christian. And so a lot of what they're doing is lashing out against individuals. And I think there are, there are many cases, and so obviously you have to take it uh, you know, as a, for, as a case-by-case uh, from a case-by-case -case scenario. Uh, but I think there are individuals, and for instance, because I can identify this with this because I was at one time an agnostic. 
I was a theistic-leaning agnostic. Bart Ehrman calls himself an atheist-leaning agnostic. I was more of a theistic-leaning agnostic. I believe that, um, you know, there were good reasons for believing that something created everything that existed. But my problem was more along the lines of, can you know Christianity is true? Can you know that a a particular religion is true? And that was the question that I had. But quite frankly, to be honest with you, I think that a lot of my problems stemmed from hurts that I had in church uh, when I had questions uh, about certain issues of the faith. I was scorned, uh, scorned and you know, was basically told, you shouldn't be asking things like that. You know, so you know, some of my doubts, some of my problems came from other believers who acted badly, quite honestly. And, uh, you know, and quite frankly, I've never been a fan of this um, artificial Christianity or this cultural Christianity that uh, where it just looks good to be a Christian. You know, I'm not I'm all for authenticity, you know, and and I and I side more with the millennials on this. Uh, I'm all for authenticity. And if a person's not genuinely a Christian, don't go around parading yourself as being one. Don't try to be a goody two shoes on Sunday if you're really not a Christian, you know. So you know, I and I think that's where many atheists uh, they're fighting back against some type of hurt that they've experienced in their lives, and uh, so I think there are some who who are fighting uh, in that regard. I think there are other individuals. In other cases, there are individuals who are trying to justify some type of sin in their life. You know, they, they have heard all along that it's uh, you shouldn't commit adultery. The, you know, they've heard uh, that uh, you shouldn't have premarital sex and you shouldn't have, think, you know, uh, exp- you know uh, because, you know, well, I won't get into all of that. But but the reality is, is, is that people know people know right from wrong. People know right from wrong. And so what they will try to do is they will try to justify sometimes something that they're doing in their lives. And in, in anyone who says anything different than that, then that's striking a chord in their own behavior, and um, they don't like that. And for instance, you know, I was doing some things when I was out of uh, the ministry and out of Christianity that, um, quite frankly, weren't weren't right. And when I heard a preacher preach on those issues, man, I was ticked off. How dare he say something like that? And so I think I can kind of resonate with this hostility because if you have sin in your life, you, you're going to try to justify what you're doing. And I think that may be a, a case in point there as well. Others may have prayed to God on behalf of someone else and didn't have their prayer answered, at least the way they wanted them to. You know, Maybe they had a, a loved one who was sick uh, with some disease, and uh, they prayed for God to heal that person, and God didn't come through. God didn't heal that person the way they thought that he would. And so maybe they're angry with God. And so in all of these cases, I think there is some anger. You know, for an ind- for individuals, there are atheists out there who are friendly atheists. There are atheists out there. There are agnostics out there. I think atheists are more likely to be agnostics than really atheists. Just, just basically saying, I don't know. Uh, you know, there are, there are a lot of secularists out there that are nice people. Quite frankly, and there are a lot of there are atheists and agnostics that don't don't really care what you believe. You know, I think there are a lot of people out there that just don't care. You know, but there are the of the militant variety of those who are militant in their beliefs against Christianity. They are striking against something that has happened in their life. Most likely, 
it's, it's something that happened to them either in the church or by an individual who was a self-professed Christian. And I say self-professed because um, there are some Christians out there that quite honestly don't behave like they should. And um, none of us are going to be perfect, and all of us to a degree are hypocrites because, I mean, the standards we hold uh, as Christians, there's no way we can ever live up to those standards. Uh, but, but those who don't show genuine love to individuals and hurt people maliciously, you know, they, they do more harm than good. And so, you know, I, I get it. I get that God is a, that God, uh, you know, has, has uh, anger issues, you know, not anger issues. That's not the right way to say it. I realize that God, there is a wrathful side of God. But I think that a lot of times we try to justify treating others badly because of issues like that and, and let God be God. And, and we just need to, as, as Wes said a few weeks ago back at, uh, when he preached for me at church, you know, we if we, we need to focus on the two main essentials, and that's loving God and loving each other. If we we can't even get that right, you know. So, but if we can get that as right as Christians, and that doesn't mean justifying sins. That doesn't mean saying calling wrong right. I'm not saying anything like that. But I I think if we could truly know what it means to love like God loves, then we would all be better off uh, as a church and as a population. And so I think that a lot of where you see atheists. Uh, who are militantly aggressive uh, against the church is coming from some hurt that they've experienced in life at some point in time. And so I think that's where that stems from. So thank you, Curtis. Great question and uh, and, and um, wonderful question indeed. Dole Watson from uh, Westfield Baptist Church asked a wonderful question. And uh, he said, uh, uh, when uh, when did Jesus know that he was the Messiah, and for how long did he follow John the Baptist? And this is Doyle asks a wonderful question here. Um, and so let's see here. Let me pull up my notes. Where did I do with it? Okay. Uh, he was actually watching a uh, documentary on the History Channel, and this was uh, one of the things that was uh, was mentioned. And and I don't I didn't get a chance to see the episode. Uh, I want to go back and watch it at some point in time. But but I would say this. Um, I don't know that there's any way we we can know conclusively on how to answer this question uh, because um, you know you know I th- I agree with Doyle that you would think that at some point in time with Mary and Joseph having these experiences that they would have probably told Jesus uh, about about uh, who he was and about uh, about these experiences that they had. So uh, Doyle asks a wonderful question here again. But I think that um, I think Jesus would have known. Now, how much did he know uh, as, as a child? I, you know, I don't know that we can answer that, but a lot of theologians have suggested that uh, that God may not have placed that burden upon Jesus that very early on, because that would be tough if you're an eight-year-old or you're a nine-year-old and you have this knowledge that you're going to die on a cross sometime, you know, one day. Um, that would be difficult as a child to know. But now there are some things that we do know in Scripture. For instance, in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, we're told that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God 
and with you know with individuals with people we're also told in uh, Luke's gospel which by the way I think some things that we see in Luke indicates that most likely Luke interviewed Mary uh, because he he records that Mary pondered these certain things in her heart how would he know that unless Mary told him but we do see some things about Jesus's childhood and and the problem is is we don't have a lot of information in the canon in the New Testament canon as to what happened with Jesus early on now, there are some extra-biblical literature out there. Uh, there's some extra-biblical literature out there that talks about the childhood of Christ. But I don't know that we can verify that information as, as well as we can in what we find in the New Testament Gospels. But we do see in um, chapter 2 of Luke that his parents, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover when he was 12 years old, most likely his bar mitzvah went up according to custom, and when the feast was ended, they were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, and when they came to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So finally, they, to summarize the story, they find Jesus, and uh, his parents saw him in the temple, and his mother says to him, "'Son, why have you treated us so?' Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he says to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So it does seem that Jesus had this knowledge that God was his father uh, to at least some degree early on in life. And we do see that Jesus increases in wisdom and stature. I do think that Jesus, being a human being, would have learned things, uh, gone through Hebrew training, Hebrew school, as was expected by most uh, young boys in that time. And um, so he would grow in wisdom. He would grow in knowledge. And so, uh, but now the question is, is what point did he know that he was the Messiah? I don't know. Did he have some epiphany at the baptism? You know, I don't know. Some scholars would say that, but I, I think that he probably had a notion of his identity well before that time. Um, he was around 30 when he started his ministry. So, you know, I, I would anticipate that in his 20s, he probably knew uh, what was what was uh, going to happen in his life. To what degree did he know? I don't know. I don't think as a young child, he probably would have had all this information. But um, but I do find it an interesting question. And, uh, and the question also is, how long did he follow John the Baptist? You know, I don't know. I, I don't know that we have a conclusive answer to that either. Um, he he uh, did seem that there was a connection between John the Baptist and Jesus. And one of the things that we do find, you know, pretty conclusively is in John's gospel, it's told to us that uh, Peter and Andrew and John and his brother James were all disciples of John the Baptist's before starting to follow Jesus. So John the Baptist had this epiphany of who Jesus was, especially at the baptism of Jesus. So John the Baptist came to the knowledge of the Messiah during that time, but I think Jesus already had that knowledge that he was the Messiah, that there was something special in his life, and that God was his Father. And so um, great question, Doyle. Keep keep the questions coming. I don't know that I answered it uh, as, as well as I could have, but I hope at least this gives give some food for thought and uh, maybe helps us as we move forward in this and, and trying to, to look at the deeper issues of the early life of men, in ministry of Jesus. So there was another individual by the name of Apple Mango 123. I like that name, Apple Mango. Um, 
a very fruity name, Apple Mango. Apple Mango, one, two, three. Uh, what is the doctrine of divine simplicity? So they ask a couple of questions here. What is the do- doctrine of divine simplicity? The second question is, how do we reconcile the doctrine of divine simplicity with the doctrine of the Trinity? And then uh, thirdly, can you recommend a book on the nature and attributes of God? And fourthly, can you recommend a book on the doctrine of the Trinity? Okay, so let me start with the last two questions first, and then I'll jump into the first two questions. Uh, this, This is a deep question. And, uh, oh, I like how David McBriar here says on Facebook, oh, the History Channel and the Bible don't go together, LOL. I would agree with that, David. Uh, You know, as I was telling Doyle, you have to watch uh, the things on the History Channel uh, and to take the things on the History Channel with a grain of salt, uh, especially when you, uh, with with Airman and with uh, John Dominic Croson of the Jesus Seminar, uh, you know, they present some good information, but just take them with a grain of salt because their presuppositions are going to be a little different uh, than what uh, evangelical Christian uh, is. And so uh, that can, um, it doesn't change the data, and that's the most important thing. It doesn't change the data, but it does change how we would interpret the data. So I would agree with that. So going back to the questions, can you recommend a good book on the nature and attributes of God? Can you recommend a book on the doctrine of the Trinity? I would recommend, if you have any uh, questions about uh, Trinity, about the nature of God, and things of this nature, I would recommend that you get you a good systematic theology book. Uh, you can find smaller books. I think A.W. Tozer has some a book on uh, the attributes of God, if I'm not mistaken. But I would recommend starting off with a good systematic theology book. Now, here's the, here's the bad point. I'm going to give you the bad point and the good point about this. The bad point is that a systematic theology book is thick okay and it's going to be a little costly okay normally they run around um 20 30 i apologize if you hear motorcycles we've got a a bunch of motorcycles going up the road here but anyhow uh, yeah the systematic theology books they're going to be they're going to be a little on the expensive side and they're going to be thick but that is a one-stop shop that you can over have a good overview of uh the basic information about god and to get you started. Now, understand that you're not going to have all the answers in the systematic theology book, and also understand that in systematic theology that each author is going to have their own particular take on it. And so uh, just go into that with that understanding, but it'll give you a good idea on the views uh, that that's out there. And I would recommend one of my favorite theologians in this regard is Millard Erickson, uh, we had his book Christian Theology at Liberty in the systematic theology books, I mean the systematic theology classes, and Millard Erickson does a solid job. Now he's going to give you what he does. He is very thorough. Okay, is he's very wordy. He's very thorough. But what Erickson's going to do is he's going to give you the the different positions on on nearly every issue concerning systematic theology. And so he's going to, he even has a section on the uh, issue of divine, doctrine of divine simplicity, which it doesn't appear that he holds. Uh, but, uh, but his book is really good. Now, if you're interested in uh, the doctrine of divine simplicity, which the question is about, I would recommend reading Thomas Aquinas' material uh, in the Summa Theologica. Here again, now the problem with the Summa Theologica is that it's the full edition is about 15,000 pages. 
So I would recommend that you get Peter Kreef's shorter volume called The Summa of the Summa. Uh, this is going to give you the, the, the core issues that Thomas Aquinas is going to deal with. He, he does include the section on the doctrine of divine simplicity. So if you want Thomas Aquinas' take on that, I would recommend Peter Kreef's shorter volume, Summa of the Summa. Thomas Oden is a man that uh, uh, is, a theolo- is a late theologian that I came to know, uh, well, not know, but appreciate his work. His work's called Classical Christianity. He does something very interesting. He links the uh, theological material back with the early church fathers and how the early church fathers viewed these these issues. And he gives uh, a lot of different quotes or little citations, not quotes necessarily, but citations linking it back to the early church fathers. His book, Classical Christianity, is really good, as is Geisler's. And, and on this issue of divine simplicity, I picked up this book. I'll try to show both the uh, YouTube channel and the Facebook channel, a Systematic Theology in One Volume. This is a good book. As you can tell, they're thick, uh, you know, but it's a one-stop shop. And if you're interested in theological issues, I would encourage you to get you a good Systematic Theology book. Now, going back to the issue of the doctrine of divine simplicity, I have to, I have to first of all say that uh, not every theologian holds to this view. Okay, this is this is a view that uh, found favor among many of the older theologians, uh, particularly one Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas really emphasizes uh, the doctrine of divine simplicity, and so uh, I'll read a couple of things here pertaining to this. Uh, the, the question is, what is the doctrine of divine simplicity? First of all, uh, uh, Norman Geisler says simple me- means without parts. Uh, for for uh, what has parts can come apart. Simple also means indivisible, that is, God is not capable of being divided. There are no seams in God, so there is no place in which the fabric of his being can be torn or come undone. Further, God's simplicity means that he is absolutely one. Not only does he have unity, but he is absolutely absolute unity. It is not oneness within manyness, it is oneness without manyness in his being essence, even though there is a plurality of persons. And you can find that on his uh, Systematic Theology book, page 423. Now, uh, so again, Aquinas really emphasized uh, the issue of divine simplicity. But there's a problem with this that uh, Millard Erickson finds in his Systematic Theology book. He says that... um, Older theologies discussed the doctrine of divine simplicity. By this was meant in part that God does not have parts simply because he has no physical nature. And this is on page 269 of his uh, uh, Christian theology book. Beyond that, however, it was generally taken to mean that God is metaphysically simple so that his attributes are in the final analysis equal to each other. This led to the strange conclusion that Love and justice are the same thing, and that God really uh, only has one attribute himself, a general attribute. William Mann has argued that there are different concepts that nonetheless are not different properties, such as triangularity and trilaterality. He also contends that although quantities such as love and power are distinguishable among their continuum, at their extremes they coincide so that all lovingness and omnipotence are the same. 
So he goes on to say that the problems that attach to even uh, his reformulation of the doctrine of divine simplicity have been pointed out by Alvin Plantinga and Thomas Morris, among others. Uh, Erickson goes on to say that it appears that simplicity in its classical formulation is at best a problematic attribute and perhaps not an attribute at all. The values that theologians and philosophers sought to preserve need to be maintained. God is uh, a, a unitary, not a composite being. His nature is not something external to him or added to his being or substance. There is no fundamental tension among the attributes, and they are ultimately aspects of the one divine nature. God is not dependent for his existence on any independently existing attributes or universals, since we cannot, in an introductory treatment of this type, attempt to work out all the implications of these points, it may be sufficient here to simply to, re- to retain them and the values they preserve. So, in other words, what he's simply saying in this is that, yes, God is, is, is united, but now how does that work among uh, all of his different attributes? And can God be said to take on attributes uh well it, it seems at first glance that he does because if god is he and i was talking we were talking about this at uh, at the ets presentation i gave on god and time uh a gentleman says that, that it may be that god takes on he doesn't lose attributes but takes on attributes especially as he entered into creation there's a point in time where he entered into a relationship with ourselves uh, with with human beings so you know this this is a very difficult um difficult doctrine to work through and and i think a lot of it may be how do you define the doctrine of divine simplicity at at the at the um, at the heart of it though it it basically says that god is a simple being that god is a composite of all of his attributes but the 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 care that needs to be taken is to say that the attributes don't make god but god uh is holds these attributes because god depends on nothing or you know anything whatsoever so it's one of those issues, you know, I, I tread lightly with the doctrine of divine simplicity. I believe at the core nature there are attributes that God holds that, uh, that, that are necessary, I think you would say, for, for him to be God. But th- does he depend on these attributes? That, that gets into a deeper issue of theology. But to answer the second question, how do we reconcile the doctrine of divine simplicity with the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, it first of all depends on how you, if you hold to the doctrine of divine simplicity. For instance, um, Norman Geisler holds to the doctrine of divine simplicity, but... Um, um, but um, excuse me, I think we had a problem here on our... On our, uh, we had a problem on our, our YouTube channel, but I think we're back on live here now. Uh, but anyhow, uh, Norman Geisler holds to the doctrine of divine simplicity, but guys like William Lane Craig don't. And so there are some of the issues that you find uh, with this. So if you hold to the doctrine of divine simplicity, I still don't think that there's a problem holding to the Trinity. Because if you say that the Trinity is a is a necessary part of who God is or of His nature, then that would be part of that um, that simple nature that He holds. For instance, it's like what uh, Norman Geisler here says in his in his uh, theology book. Not only does He have unity, but He is absolute unity. It is not oneness within manyness; it is oneness without manyness in His being. Even though there is a plurality of persons, so. 
again, this can get very complicated. But hopefully this gives you a little starting ground on, on your journey with this. But it doesn't necessarily, there doesn't necessarily need to be a problem within the Trinity and the doctrine of divine simplicity if you hold to the doctrine of divine simplicity, and not everybody does. Okay, from just for now, uh, I don't know if their email address is just for now or or if just or what's going on there. But just for now, that's their name. Uh, they're just for now has a couple of questions, have a couple of good questions here. What is your view of eternal security? And that's a good question. Thank you. Just for now, that's a wonderful question. I do hold to eternal security, and I think that maybe the better term though is eternal assurance, uh, because um, I, I don't. One of the one of the problems that we have is in uh, in Christianity is is thinking that um, we can get saved and then all of a sudden just do anything we want to do and then without any uh, problem whatsoever. And, and I even came across a person one time who uh, who said to me, he said, uh, the only the one problem I have with you Baptists is you believe that you can get saved and you can live like the devil afterwards and think that you're okay with God. And I told the lady, I says, ma'am, if, if I felt that, if, if that's what real Baptists really believed, then I wouldn't be a Baptist either. I said, that's most certainly not what we believe. Um, but I think a better, a better term is eternal security. And I, th- I think uh, eternal assurance, excuse me, um, there's a couple of passages of Scripture that I would read to you. And I'm reading the ESV today uh, because it was the Bible I had closest to me. And that's what I'm used to today. <laughs> John 6.39, Jesus says in John 6.39, he says, uh, And this is the will of him who sent me, talking about the Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So you have this balance, and we spoke about this at at, at Westfield the other other, other week uh, in a message. There's this interesting balance you find in Scripture where on the one hand you find the... the, um, divine sovereignty, but on the other hand, you find human freedom. And so this is one of those passages of Scripture because later uh, he says, uh, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. But he says in verse 39, this is the will of the one who sent me that I should lose nothing of the all that he has given me. So the Father has given him individuals, yet at the same time there's the freedom of individuals to uh, respond to the grace of God. But nonetheless, I digress, uh, getting off topic. Verse 39 shows that there is security that an individual has in their relationship with Christ. John chapter 10, verse 9 also says this. These are the words of Jesus. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and find pasture. This is verse 9. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And uh, that's not the passage of Scripture I was looking for. Where is that one at? Um, Okay, let's see here. Well, anyhow, that's not the passage of Scripture I'm looking for. But anyhow, it goes on to say that that no one can remove, and you may just want to do a Google search of this uh, after the podcast is over even now. Um, There's a passage of Scripture that Jesus says that he will not lose any uh, that uh, comes to him, that they are secured in the Father's hands. Not even Satan himself can pull that person out of the Father's hand. So the question is, when we talk about salvation, one of the questions we need to consider is who saves whom? It's a big question. 
And, and as we talk about the Pelagianism and the heresy of Pelagius, the heresy of Pelagius was not that he held to free will of humanity. For, because, for instance, Augustine himself even held to human freedom, especially earlier in his life. He held to human freedom as well, the human responsiveness that a person has to the grace of God. But so the question is who saves whom? The problem with Pelagius is Pelagius, what made Pelagianism a heresy is that Pelagius was saying that human beings don't need God, they don't need Christ, they can save themselves. That's what made Pelagianism a heresy. Semi-Pelagianism is the idea that God saves a person, but that you have to work to maintain that uh, to work to, to to maintain being saved of some sort, or or to, um, to 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 add to the grace of God of some sort. Okay, so Pelagianism is not about human freedom. Pelagianism is about who saves whom. According to Pelagius of Britain, he held the idea that human beings save themselves. They basically, if they're a good enough person, they can save themselves. Augustine says no. God is the one who saves us. And that Pelagianism is a heresy because Christ, it was needed to save our souls. God is the one who issues grace to us. We respond to that grace, but God is the one who issues that grace. So the heart of the question is who saves whom? And if God is the one who saves us, then it really makes no sense uh, for us to think that, uh, that we're in this theological salvific limbo you know, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The thing I would say to you, though, is that there are many individuals, because going back to the woman's question about uh, individuals who say that you can be saved and then go out and live like the world, live like there's no transformation, there are many individuals who've made false professions of faith. And this is not just a Baptist answer. This, I think this is a reality. There are many individuals who've made a, a, a false profession of faith they they may have come to Christ because that's what their parents wanted them to do, or they may have come to Christ because that would look good on their resume, or at least it used to. It may not now. Uh, they may have come to Christ because of pressure that their girlfriend or their wife has placed upon them, and so on and so forth. But the reality is, is that when Christ saves a person, there is a transformation that happens in the person's heart. That doesn't mean that they're automatically perfect, and that doesn't mean that that um, that, that they're going to do everything right, but it means that their desires have changed. They no longer desire the same things that they used to. They have a new focus in life. They have a new uh, heartfelt uh, desire to serve Christ and to serve the Lord, uh, to be used of God for His glory. And then they've, they've really placed that faith and trust in Christ. So again, I think that if God has worked in a person's heart and has really brought forth a transformation, there will be fruit in that person's life. Uh, but don't take that to say that if, if we're not doing X, Y, and Z, we're not Christians. But I simply say this. If there's a transformation made in a person's heart, then I think that God has, has brought about salvation. The Bible tells us in many places that the, that the existence of the Holy, per, uh, Holy Spirit in a person's life is the seal of redemption placed upon uh, that individual's life. So this does not give us a get-out-of-jail-free card. Salvation is not a means to go and do as we please. Uh, it's just simply to say that uh, this is a work of God brought, a, brought about in our lives. 
It says, Dear Pastor Brian, also just from just for now, if a Christian denies Jesus out of fear, can he still go to heaven? How do the following verses relate to this issue? So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge them before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny them before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10 32 through 33. Then he also says in Luke uh, 22, 34, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And then he, then also there's a listing of John chapter 21 where you have this reconciliation that's brought about uh, with Jesus to Peter uh, after Peter denied him three times. I, I, I think this depends on the question, and that this depends on each case. And obviously, I'm not God, and ultimately, the uh, the decision of what happens with an individual would be God's in the end. Um. Okay, I have some. I have a couple of questions. It looks like on the Facebook Live uh, here, I'll try to get back to those here in just a few moments if we have time. Uh, let me go back to the to the question here. It says I think it depends on each. I think it depends on each case. For instance, it would be easy for us in the United States of America. I, I'm coming to you from the Bible Belt in uh, good old North Carolina. It would be easy for me to say to you that anyone who ever denies Jesus in a time of persecution would uh, would would be uh, disowned by God. But I, I grant you that I have never faced the type of persecution that is going on in Pakistan. I've never faced the type of persecution that's happening even now in China. I've never faced the persecution that's happened in North Korea and many other nations across the land. So that would be easy for me in my in my warm home, in my uh, nice comfy chair with a cat meowing behind me, to simply say that if anyone has ever made a mistake, that God would automatically deny them. I think if you're in a certain situation when your family is in danger and your life is being threatened by exquisite torture, it would be a different case for us. Now, I'm not saying, I honestly think that Christians who go through persecutions and stuff like that are quite frankly a lot stronger in their faith than those of us who haven't. Uh, so I, I have seen Christians stand up, but if a person lapses and out of fear, uh, out of fear, they momentarily reject Christ for whatever means. Simon Peter did the same thing, okay? Simon Peter did the same thing. He denied Jesus three times, okay? But Jesus took him back in. Jesus forgave him, and that's the beautiful story we see in John chapter 21. I think that if Jesus would forgive Simon Peter for a lapse in judgment, and, and and doing this out of fear, a momentary moment of fear, that he would do the same for anyone else. Now, a true Christian could not consistently reject Christ. The person will let their... Um... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm kidding. <laughs> kind of weird thing that popped up on the YouTube screen. <laughs> and I'm kind of like that dog on... Uh, on uh, the Up movie where it says, you know, going one direction. It says, Squirrel, you know. So that thing just made me completely lose my train of thought. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, but a person's going to let their light shine. You know, a person's going to let their light shine eventually. And so th there cannot be this continual rejection. But I, I think if a person lapses in a moment of fear, you know, Christ is obviously going to uh, forgive that person. And, and I really think that uh, 
that he, that he would. So uh, Al Baker basically uh, emphasizes, uh, he, he goes through, I don't, I'm running out of time on the podcast here. I've got to watch my time limit uh, because I'm coming dangerously clo- close to uh, the limit. Uh, but uh, to, if I don't have time on the podcast, I will go back and answer the questions on, on the uh, Facebook live feed here. So he's basically saying that uh, on the, an article that I wrote on 10 reasons to accept the resurrection, uh, he says, I, I like the article. I appreciate your article, but I would like to propose that you need to put far more attention to the testimony of Paul. Uh, he held great animus against the Christians, probably at least in part due to the Hellenization influence and the outreach of the Gentiles, the very thing the risen Jesus is reported to issue to him as a mission. So he talks about the predating of the uh, of the letters of Paul to the written Gospels and the most historical primary source documents. Okay, I'm not going to read through it, but this is uh, this is still uh, he, he has a wonderful things as if uh, he, and this is from Al Baker, Ph.D. And I would say, Al, I, I appreciate uh, Dr. Baker. I appreciate your response, and um, I do think the gospel serve as a good testimony to the life of Christ. Um, Gary Habermas, Craig Keener, Michael Kona, and other scholars accept that the Gospels are considered historical biographies, not known as bios or bioi. Uh, and, and so I do think that they serve as a historical basis for knowing about the life of Jesus. But I would agree with you. Uh, it's very interesting. In fact, I'm hoping if I if I make it through the classwork of my, the work I'm doing for a PhD. I'm hoping that my dissertation will be on something pertaining to the creeds, the early creeds found in the New Testament. And they're, quite frankly, they're fascinating. They date to within uh, many scholars, and not even Christian scholars, but many scholars state that 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7, dates to within months of the actual crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. You can't get any earlier than that. And plus, the sermon summaries of Acts also were very early. They're this this early material that notes uh, something very early in the ministry of the church. And it's very interesting. There's an incredible parallel between 1 Corinthians 15 and Acts chapter 13, verses 28 through 33. Go look that up. It's a very interesting parallel between the two. So anyhow, you know, I'd, I'd agree with you. I do think that the gospel serve as a good testimony for the life of Jesus, but I agree with you. The early creeds found in the letters of Paul, historically speaking, they are absolutely phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal indeed. So, okay, all right. Uh, let me move on to um, Just For Now has another question. Uh, is it correct to say that humans are basically good? And I would say to that, yes and no. Uh, human beings are made in the image of God. So in that sense, human beings are a good creation of God. However, the nature of humanity has been corrupted by sin. Uh, the Bible states that there's no one righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says this. I think there's a passage in the book of Habakkuk that says the same. Uh, there's also a passage that says that all of our good works are as filthy rags before a holy God. So um, can we, by our own nature, do good, the good as good? is what God could do? Absolutely not. So there is a an evil uh, nature to the the human psyche uh, that that is inclined to do evil, uh, but that can be transformed by the grace of God. But human beings, by and far, have been made in the image of God. So there is an important uh, aspect of, of of human beings, and that every person, every single individual, has a purpose in this life. Every person has value. Every individual holds that value because God created them. And 
If you know me, I think that value is not only outside the womb, but is also inside the womb. I think you know where I'm going with that. Okay, so every human life has value. From Clark Seeley, questions for podcast. In the New Testament scripture, is there a difference between the phrases the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? If not, why not? If so, what are the differences? I will just simply say this as I am running low on time. Uh, there does seem to be a difference, a slight difference between the two. It seems like the kingdom of God seems to describe the people of God on earth, whereas the kingdom of heaven describes the heavenly kingdom. So so when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, uh, uh, and many times he's talking about the church doing the works of God on earth, and the kingdom of heaven is talking about that spiritual realm, that heavenly kingdom um, that uh, that um, that exists. So uh, there's that as well. All right, uh, could you address concerning similarities of the Jewish leadership traditions of the first century and the Roman Catholic top? level leadership traditions of today. Thanks for all these, Clark. Thank you, Clark, for your questions. And thank you for supporting Bellator Christie. Uh, let's see, there's also another question I skipped over. I'll come back to that in a moment. I think that the leadership of the Jewish, uh, the, the Jewish leadership was more along the lines of what we would consider to be an elder-led authority. And this seems to be carried over into the early church. I'm not convinced that uh, the um, that the authority of the early church was like the Roman Catholic hierarchy, but I'm also not convinced. And my Baptist friends, I'm sorry you don't stone me after this, but I'm not convinced that it was completely a congregational model either. I think you did have uh, you have evidence of there being elders and pastors in the early church, and I and I think that um, you know the apostles served as many of these elders. Now, how all of that developed is is a matter of opinion. And speculation, but I do think that uh, the early church did adopt a lot of the leadership model that you find in the Jewish leadership, and so um, so the, the closest thing I think you could probably find. And let me just say, when I say this, I'm not a Calvinist, okay? But I do think this kind of elder-led model that you see in some Presbyterian churches may be close, more closely akin to what you find in the early development of of the church because it seems to be in my opinion and i may be wrong on this but it seems to be in my opinion that uh that that seems to be the 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 um the model that uh, the early church had and is the model that uh, the Jewish leadership had. Do you believe in a trichotomy, body, soul, and spirit of humans, or dichotomy, body, and soul, and spirit? Well, I tend to be... Let, let me just explain this. Okay, I've got just a couple minutes left on the podcast, and I'm going to wrap the podcast up, but then I'll spend a little more time answering the questions uh, that uh, that you may have on the live feeds here. Uh so that's one of the benefits of having the YouTube channel and the Facebook Live. Okay, um, I tend to be a dichotomist, meaning that I believe that a, dichotomists believe that there is a soul and a body, that a human beings have a soul and a body that are separate. Trichotomists believe that human beings have a soul, a spirit, and a body, all three composing the one person. I tend to be a dichotomist. I believe in the soul and I believe in the spirit, but I, I personally believe that when a person dies, their soul and spirit, part of one thing, goes to be with God. So I think the spirit is our connectiveness, our life energy, if you want to call it that, however you define the spirit, but our soul is our mind, will, and our emotions. 
okay? And I think that spirit and that soul is connected together in some way. There are some distinctions between the soul and the spirit, as we just mentioned, but I think they're linked together. So I think that personally, I hold to more of a dichotomous view that the soul and spirit are two separate entities but connected together, and then we also have a body as well. And when we die, that soulish spiritual aspect of a person goes to be with God and exists with Him until the time of the resurrection when our souls are reunited with our bodies and we become a resurrected being. Okay. All right. Wow. So uh, if you were with us on Facebook Live and YouTube, stay tuned. We're going to continue to answer some of the questions that you have on there. If you're listening to the podcast, we want to thank you for tuning in. And again, if you have any questions, be sure to to, uh, go to bellatorchristie.com on the top right-hand corner and click Submit Your Questions and be sure to, uh, to submit your questions. I hope that we have enough questions to do another one of these. This has been a lot of fun. And, uh, and I've thoroughly enjoyed this, and I hope that you've gotten something good out of it as well. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, and this is Brian Children saying God bless, and we'll see you back next time. Views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of BellatorChristi.com or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi Podcast is a production of BellatorChristi.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights reserved. The theme song is Crucified, written by John and Kayla Lemonese, performed by Crosby Lane, and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit bellatorchristie.com and subscribe so that you can receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox for free. Catch us on iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless, and we'll see you the next time as we enter into the arena of ideas. Bellator Christie is now on YouTube. Go to youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie and catch the podcasts as they're recorded live. And you, there you can interact with the content, ask questions live on the podcast, and your questions may be included. If you don't make the live podcast, be sure to go to bellatorchristie.com and click submit your question, and your question may be featured on a future article or podcast. Again, we thank you for your support, and thank you for listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast.